to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Michael Squires, the politics editor at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me at our Arizona Capitol Bureau this week are... Dustin Gardner, I cover the state legislature. Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. Maria Paletta, I cover diversity and demographic issues. This week on the Gaggle, foster care oversight in the state has a diversity problem. We'll discuss that. And Congressman Tom O'Halloran's district office is not in his district. But we start with the latest sexual harassment allegations at the Capitol. More women are accusing Don Shooter of harassment and inappropriate remarks. Dustin, what are the new allegations? Yes, yeah, so there's, there's just been an avalanche of new accusations against Shooter in the last week. There are now at least seven women who are publicly accusing him of harassment. There's more of that, um, you know, with unnamed or um, sources, women who w- will not go on record with their name, several more at least, um, reported by the Capital Times. And these allegations range from everything from, you know, inappropriate comments, sexually charged comments to inappropriate touching, unwanted sexual advances. Um, and he's now the subject of multiple investigations in the House. So is Don Shooter responding to these individually, denying any of them, or has he just sort of gone quiet? He's been quiet in the last week. Um, initially, when Representative Eugenti Rita um, named him as one of her harassers last week, he fired back at her. But since that time, he's been quiet, and he's consistently said that he cannot comment due to the ongoing investigations in the House. So uh, among those accusing him is Mia Parrish, the publisher of the Arizona Republic, and I guess I should know our boss's boss. Uh, and she she wrote uh, a column about her experience. What, what did she say happened? Yeah, so um, Mia Parrish described an incident that happened in 2016. This was shortly after she had um, been appointed publisher of the Arizona Republic and was in AZ Central. Support, um, in that legislation, I was at the legislature. He was a senator at the time, and I was speaking with him about legislation regarding local newspapers and the effect and impact that potential legislation could have and was asking for his support um, in that legislation. And he said he was indeed independent and he had actually done everything that he ever uh, wanted to do and in his words on his bucket list. And then he said, except for that one thing. And I asked him, what one thing did you not do on your bucket list, Senator? And he said, those Asian twins in Mexico. As an Asian woman, I found offensive. Obviously, as I said in this, I think it's inappropriate what he said to me. I think it's inappropriate to do that in an environment like that. And and um, He has not specifically responded to that allegation. All he has said is that he cannot comment due to the investigation and that the truth will eventually come out. Uh, so you bring up the investigation and they're ongoing. Uh, what, what is the sense on how long these will take? So Speaker Mesnard has said that he hopes to wrap it up before the session starts in January. Um, it's unclear if that's going to be possible. There's a bipartisan investigation team in the House made up of attorneys and staffers on both sides of the aisle. They are hiring outside counsel, um, some sort of law firm, to, to lead the review, um, but there's really no clear indication how quickly that's going to happen at this point. Have you heard from people that they've talked to? I have not heard of anybody that's been interviewed yet. At this point, um, it, it seems like most of the accusations that are being leveled are coming out in the public through the media. Um, and it's I have not heard of any other accusers actually taking complaints to House leadership either. It's just so far been, you know, the accusations we're seeing in the press. So it's uh, Michelle Eugenti Rita who sort of brought this whole thing uh, to the fore when she published on social media, this is probably three weeks ago now, her allegations. And um, at that point, 
J.D. Mesnard, House Speaker, came out with some rules that uh, how these were going to be handled going forward because she said she didn't feel like the leadership heard her or addressed her concerns. Is, are there any calls to put more teeth into what he's proposed? Yeah, so um, Eugenti Rita, as well as um, House Majority Whip Kelly Townsend, uh, who also said that she's faced harassment over the years, they've both called on the House to create a stronger policy. Um, Townsend specifically has said that she wants to run a bill to create a harassment policy for the legislature that's um, codified in state law. So it's not just a policy. It'd be state law, have the power of state law. Um, And then beyond that, Townsend has called for the creation of some sort of outside body or appointment of an outside body that would receive complaints outside of House or Senate leadership. And her I guess rationale for doing that is she's concerned that future leadership might try try to sweep these things under the rug. Um, And then Eugenti Rita specifically has um, called attention to the fact that the House and the Senate have different harassment policies. The Senate has apparently had a a harassment policy since 2005. Members of that chamber weren't aware of it and it hasn't been widely circulated, but it's a different policy than the House has. So she wants the policies to be mirroring. So there's, you know, everyone's playing by the same rules. So we're uh, probably six weeks away from the legislative session getting underway, the state of the state address, so forth. How awkward is it going to be when everybody gets in that room? You know, allegations are just flying fast down here. Um, You know, it's almost every other day there's some sort of new allegation of harassment or an inappropriate relationship. At this point, you know, things are not going to be getting off to a very good start, um, you know, within the parties or, you know, just in the chamber as a whole. But you say Mesner wants to have this all wrapped up before then? You know, I've heard that he wants to wrap it up by that time. I don't know if that's going to be possible. Um, And beyond that, he said that all members are going to be directed to undergo ethics training at the start of the session, the first week of the session. And that will include sexual harassment training. So I think this topic is going to be the forefront of everyone's mind come January 8th. We can't top ethics training at the Arizona legislature, so we'll just leave it right. (laughs) We'll leave it right there. Ron, you, you reported this week that uh, Tom O'Halloran, congressman, represents the first district, has a district office that is not in his district. And of course, this is the kind of thing that his opponents like to make hay out of. Yeah, this is a little less consequential than sexual harassment at the state capitol or in Washington, uh, for that matter, these days. Uh, but it is uh, an embarrassing matter, it seems. Uh, Tom O'Halloran, a, a freshman Democrat, Um, His district is 58,000 square miles. It's one of the largest in Congress and is bigger than entire states. Um, He has several different office locations, as you can imagine. Among them is one that is in Tucson, and it's about a half mile outside the boundaries of his district. And he said he chose this location because it was near businesses in that area, but also because the rent that he could uh, that that would be paid for that is uh, about a third of what he was looking at for something comparable nearby that would be within his district. So um, it was pitched as a frugal decision, uh, but it's also uh, freighted with political baggage. It seems, uh, if nothing else, for uh, some guffaws. Right, and the yeah the the attack ads ads sort of write themselves it's like he doesn't even know where his district is. So uh, we've also been uh, talking about in recent weeks Martha McSally, who has told her colleagues she's going to run for Senate, and then since then has said nothing more about it. You went down to Tucson uh, late last week to see if she would talk about that. She had an event. 
that she said was an official event, so she couldn't talk about politics. So certainly she wasn't going to address that. What's happened since then? Martha McSally remains uh, tight-lipped, as always, about her political intentions. And for the record, she also declined to discuss this when the event was breaking up. She just kind of darted off and, and uh, pleaded a busy schedule, no time to answer these kinds of questions, even as dozens of her constituents were protesting outside uh, that, among other things, that Martha doesn't represent us. Um, and they were asking her to be more responsive to their interests, and that just really didn't seem to happen. So she has not shed light on her political intentions, but I think it's notable that they've also taken no steps to walk back any idea that she has aspirations to go to the Senate as well, which is uh, somewhat revealing. Because it's an open secret, she's she's already drawing fire from Democrats and from even some conservative groups who want to see someone else get in that race. Is that affecting her decision at all? Do you have any sense of that? I'm sure that it has to affect it, especially, again, the, the broadside that she got from the Club for Growth and, and some of the uh, similar uh, groups uh, on the Tea Party side. Um, that, that's sort of startling. When you're not even a declared candidate to have a group with very deep pockets come out and come after you as unsuited uh, for that job that you haven't even said you want officially, um, I, that has to make you sit up a little straighter. Um, this is all complicated by the reality that John McCain's seat could come open in the near term. And so there's been a lot of going back and forth and, and trying to figure out who might end up where. So is it just me, Ron, or is this like one of the worst rollouts you've ever seen? This is definitely one of the worst I have seen, I must say. I don't know that I have seen them all, but boy, I've seen a couple. The, the funny thing about this is that Kirsten Cinema, who is in the race also for the Democrats, she was getting hammered for the poor rollout that she had, first for taking so long to just officially declare herself, and then there were grumblings uh, among Republicans afterward to say that she didn't follow up that announcement with some big splashy tour around the state or some such thing. It's funny how the party who is not part of the candidate it you know wants to see them do so well right out of the gate. But now you're seeing a lot of folks, uh, I think, on the left who are saying, you know, Martha, are you in or not? And what is the holdup? And where does all this take us? So, yeah, it's kind of, um, it's reached a point where when she does announce, it, it's not a secret to anybody. So what, what is the news? Maria Paletta, you had a story in Sunday's paper about the state's foster care review boards and their lack of diversity. We probably need to unpack it a little bit. I don't know that a lot of listeners would be familiar with what those are. What do they do? So foster care review boards were created about 40 years ago by the Arizona legislature at the time. We were one of the first states in the U.S. Uh, to have something like this. These are volunteer citizen boards who weigh in on cases of children who are currently in the Arizona foster care system. So they're not able to issue orders, but they make recommendations to juvenile court judges. They look at if the child's current placement is appropriate and if the state is making sufficient efforts toward finding them a permanent home. So they are, they, are they present for the, the hearings or do they review the files separately? They review the files separately. They meet once a month. Each board can take up to 100 cases 
And when they meet, they go case by case. They give an opportunity for case managers, anybody who's involved really, including the children if they're of age, and look at um, what should be done next. And then they put together essentially a report answering a handful of questions, add any comments or recommendations they feel are necessary that should be on the record. And then that's shared with juvenile court judges as well as all the other relevant parties. And, and you talked to some judges, at least former judges. Did they say that these were important parts of or influential with them as they looked at the decision they were they did so it seems to vary based on the judge how much weight they give to the foster care review board's recommendations a couple of judges that i spoke to said that they always make it sort of part of their prep routine when they're getting ready to look at a case they said the boards have been very useful in the past at highlighting areas of need that maybe the state didn't mention and that gives the judges an opportunity to address those issues maybe even call for um, a specific hearing to address them. And so the big finding in your story, though, is that, uh, like you said, the legislature created them, they mandated they be, that they reflect the communities that they serve, but in most cases, they're almost all white, the members of these boards. Yes, so statewide board members are about 90% white. There are six counties where board members are 100% white. In Maricopa County, it's about 90% as well. When you look at children in the Arizona foster care system, as of earlier this year, about 60% of those kids were of color. And that's a problem. Why? So there are two reasons that that can be a problem. Number one is the issue of cultural bias, whether explicit or implicit. Studies have shown over decades now um, that anybody involved in making decisions in the foster care system from the initial sort of person off the street who may choose to report a family all the way up to a professional caseworker can knowingly or not uh, treat children and their families differently based on their race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. The other issue is uh, to ensure that the families themselves who are involved in these cases feel like they're getting a fair shake. So if they already feel, you know, they're, they're encountering the situation where their child might be taken away from them or already has been and then they go into a review board meeting and the family is for example Native American and every single other person at the table who's helping make a decision about the case is white that sort of adds to the feeling that they're not getting a fair shake. So what is uh, I mean this one interesting thing about the story I guess before I get to that question is that they basically admitted to it. It's, I mean often when we do a story like this we we get our findings and we're going like look it's not what you said it should be but in this case, they say, yeah, you're right. What? Why are they so willing to, I guess, play along with the findings in this story? Yes, state officials were very open about acknowledging the lack of diversity. They said that they have, in recent years, tried to step up recruitment efforts, um, reaching out to organizations in uh, minority communities, and just it still remains a challenge, they say, to recruit um, male applicants and to recruit ethnically diverse applicants. Uh, one issue might be that uh, these positions are unpaid and they require a certain time commitment, like I said, a full day, uh, a full meeting day each month as well well as however many hours it takes to prepare for those meetings. Uh, not everybody can make that commitment, especially for free. So they're, they're trying, they want to get the word out there that they want more diverse volunteers. So I think that's why they were willing to, to sort of acknowledge that lack of diversity. They want to see it change as well. And for the people who want to get involved, how do they do that? Anybody interested in serving on one of these boards can go to azcourts.gov FCRB to request an application. The process involves, of course, that application, which, which asks for demographic information, an interview, a fingerprinting, and a background check.
so the holidays are almost upon us, and for our final segment, I'm going to ask what uh, holiday movie you're going to plan on seeing. For me, my family tradition with my family is watching A Christmas Story any number of times when it's on 24 hours a day um, by Christmas. We have all the lines memorized, inappropriate and otherwise. Home Alone 1 and 2, that's always been a family tradition for me. There's nothing like gratuitous violence during the holidays. Well, I've got a five-year-old, so I'm sure there will be a lot of cartoons in there somewhere. But personally, I will find time for Bad Santa because (laughs) Billy Bob Thornton and and Arizona in that movie, you, you just can't do any better than that. It'll be Christmas vacation in the Squire's household. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at MG Squires. At M. Poletta, P-O-L-L-E-T-T-A. At Dustin Gardner, Gardner with an I. And you can reach me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Thanks to the politics team. Our production team is Jojo Hakaba, Haley Sanchez, and Kayla White. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.